You're listening to HSBC Talks Business. Learn how businesses like yours are leveraging a wide range of banking solutions to maximise their success and how HSBC is helping them. Listeners should note that this episode has been recorded remotely, therefore the sound quality may vary. Thank you for listening. Hello, and thank you for listening to the second in a series of six HSBC UK agricultural podcasts on the subject of sustainability in farming and the journey we're taking towards carbon neutrality. My name is Martin Hansen. I'm the head of agriculture for HSBC in the UK. And the bank has recently been working closely with academics at UCL in the production of a paper on the pathway to net zero for UK agriculture. That paper's now been published and I and the wider HSBC agricultural team wanted to explore beyond the academic work what's happening already on farms in order to improve sustainable farming practices. Today we will be hearing from four farmers about the practical steps they've already taken or have planned for the future. My guests between them cover arable, dairy, beef and sheep and pigs. And my hope is that they will be able to pass on some tips from their own experiences based on both what's worked well for them and also with the benefit of hindsight, what they would have done differently if they were approaching the issue from scratch now. My guests today are Jake Freestone, who farms the Overbury Estate on the Gloucestershire-Worcestershire border, which encompasses a range of soil types. Around half the land is used for combinable crops, and the estate is also running a flock of ewes that number over a thousand. Jake's been working in soil management for many years and in fact was one of the 2020 Soil Farmer of the Year winners and also in 2012 was awarded a Nuffield Farming Scholarship to study wheat growing within a sustainable farming system. Paul Williams is an upland farmer working with beef from North Wales where a proportion of the farm is peat moorland Paul is actively working with Meat Production Wales on issues including the sustainability of Welsh red meat production. Neil Baker runs a large-scale dairy farm on the Somerset-Dorset border, supplying Tesco via Arla and has been exploring many aspects of sustainability on his enterprise. Neil has won several national awards within the dairy sector. And last but certainly not least, Richard Lister, is a very experienced large-scale arable and pig farmer from Yorkshire. Richard is a former chairman of a national pig association, having only recently completed a six-year stint fulfilling that role. Welcome, gentlemen. Now, the format today is that I'll ask a question of one of my guests to start the conversation, but I hope all of my guests will chip in to compare similar and relatable experiences. We will see how we go for time, but I hope to cover ground which includes motivation for becoming more sustainable, carbon calculators, improving productivity, soil health, energy use and generation, and carbon sequestration. I'm gonna start with your motivation for improving the farm's sustainability footprint. And Richard, I'm gonna come to you first because I know that legislation has been a driver for much of a change in the pig sector on environmental and welfare issues. And I'm I'm interested if this was your main motivation to improve your own carbon footprint or have other considerations influenced you as well. Good morning. Yeah. Well, sustainability 
for my own business as a pig farmer um, revolves firmly around efficiency, as I'm sure it does for most production-facing businesses. And this has been primarily achieved by improvements in pig performance. And to achieve this, recording and measuring that performance has been absolutely key. The carbon footprint of British pig farming has reduced by approximately 40% in the last 20 years, according to Queen's University Belfast. But this has been achieved through genetics, advances in animal nutrition and investment in new buildings. During that time of 20 years, we've seen pig litter sizes rise from 12 born alive to 16 born alive, sometimes greater. In addition, increases in slaughter weights in the region of 10 kilos over that time have helped us increase feed efficiency and output has been transformed. But the motivation primarily relies on or revolves around profitability, which for some is a dirty word with respect to animal production, but without profitability, we don't have a sustainable business. Legislation has been particularly harsh on the pig sector with a unilateral sow stall ban back in 99 that crucified the UK industry by introducing UK standards with no protection from product produced to different standards from abroad, no support for transition to these changes. And at present, we're on the cusp of seeing history repeating itself with uh, the challenge to the use of the farring crate going forward. So welfare legislation has probably not helped the sustainability of pig farming and has probably made it, put it in a worse position by not providing some sort of protection, some sort of transition. Environmental legislation is growing and increasing at the moment in its demands upon all animal production and is going to have a significant effect going forward. So legislation, whilst we have to comply to it to be a legitimate business, it undermines our sustainability if we're competing head-to-head you know, -head with product on the marketplace that's not produced to those standards. And you know, this is something that uh, powers in government and within DEFRA have failed to take on board yet again. So whilst we have made significant progress and more progress will be made, there's some really big challenges for the pig sector. That's really interesting, uh, Richard. Paul, Jake, Neil, do you, uh, does that resonate with you? I think from my point of view, it's I could say those exact same words about my business, but I don't think dairy is really, haven't had any legislation or restriction as of yet, but I can see it coming in the next few years. And um, I think the dairy industry is not prepared for it at all. I think we like, my business, I like to think we're prepared for it, but as we don't know what it's going to be, we're not, you know, it's pretty difficult to gauge if we are or we aren't. But I think all of those things about being, you know, technically better, all of those statistics, I'm sure, are exactly the same in, you know, efficient dairy production. They are in pig production. You know, we're doing, you know, better feed, better genetics, better crops. You know, it's all, all the same levers that we're pulling. Um, but we have got the slight curveball of government restriction that we don't know about. So uh, just two questions then, then Neil. From, was efficiency the main driver for you when it came to your motivation for environmental issues? Yeah, I mean, we, we have been carbon, 
I don't know how long, other, we'll find out in a minute, I don't know how long other industries have been carbon footprinting, but we've probably been doing it for 10 years on and off because the, the consultants we use were quick into the game of carbon footprinting dairy. We've been doing it with Tesco very officially through Alltech from, I think it's year five we're into now. And really what comes out of that is all near enough all efficient practices reduce carbon which is great news isn't it but the thing that i'm always frustrated about is you know i don't think the recording is very good of how you get to your end point so if you are actually being benchmarked with other people and possibly worse still if you're starting to be benchmarked by the government or the rpa or ahpa or whoever is going to get these numbers you know are these numbers accurate enough to be used against us mm. I, i'm going to come back to uh, to the whole issue of uh, carbon calculators um so i'll probably come back to you in a moment neil on that one but the other question i was going to ask uh, of you and, and and of the other three is um i i do meet with defra on a regular basis as i guess all of the agricultural banks do uh, when it comes to sort of future legislation, are there any key messages that you would want me to be uh, passing over on your behalf? Well, um, if, if I can step in there, Martin, um, uh, to answer the, your initial question, I think um, for, for me personally, having, I think, participated in three different uh, carbon capture uh, projects here in Wales, um, there is one one thing is clear that it doesn't matter which which way you do it, which system you use. I think there's a clear correlation between a low carbon footprint and a business efficiency. And for me, that's absolutely key. You know, um, if that is if that correlation is correct, then you know it gives you a pointer that we're doing something right. From a legislation point of view, unfortunately, here in Wales, uh, we've had a bit of a hammer blow in the last couple of months where the Welsh Assembly Government have decided to place the whole of Wales into an NVZ uh, zone. Uh, now, th this is against everybody's recommendation, e e even, you know, National Resource Wales will have to, unfortunately, police this type of um, legislation. They were dead against it. And, and it looks to go totally against what you're doing there in England, where I think the chairman of uh, Natural England has said that, you know, a blanket policy doesn't work. So, um, in a way, if this legislation um, is going to come through and is going to stay in place, um, then absolutely it's going to have an effect on every single business, farming business in Wales. So that will, in effect, be a part of a driver in carbon reduction. We ourselves here have spent the last three months actually mitigating the effect of, of a possible NVZ uh, legislation. We, we, we are in an area where we get in excess of 2.6 metres of rainfall every year. So that in itself, without any legislation, causes problems. Um, you could argue we have too much rain in, in the winter, way too much rain in the winter, but possibly not enough in the summer. So, you know, uh, part of it is legislation, but I think fundamentally for, for me as a beef producer, Having had a hell of a lot of flack in the last couple of years about beef production in the UK, it was vital that we did something to prove uh, that the, the, the doubt is wrong. Absolutely. Uh, Jake, do you, do you, would you like to come in at this point in terms of your motivation or uh, any views on legislation? 
Yeah, I mean, in terms of motivation, we looked at the, the economics of sort of arable and sheep production back in, well, 10 years ago, and, and we could see sort of a, a tailing off of, of support, margins getting squeezed, and uh, we looked at how could we reduce, reduce costs of production, uh, reducing tillage, reducing uh, inputs without sort of compromising the, the output. So looking at actually the, the profit more than just the, the gross margin. And that was one of the key drivers for us is to how we could be more efficient uh, as a producer of, of, uh, of arable crops. And that's obviously a theme that's, that's running through. I think what, what we've learned, and it sort of took us by surprise, is that actually farming in this way with sort of regenerative agriculture as a, as a label against it, we have got so many more benefits that we just really didn't think about at the time. Environmental benefits, water quality, you know, cleaner air, reduced emissions and, and fundamentally reduced carbon. So we've, we've been carbon footprinting on our lamb flock um, with Sainsbury's. We probably started that about 10 years ago with the lamb development group. And we did that for a few years. That sort of tailed off, sadly. But we, we've got back into carbon auditing. And that is quite a driver in its own self, in its own way, actually, in terms of benchmarking ourselves year on year, uh, trying to reduce the carbon that we are emitting as a business. And, and for an arable farm in our sort of scale, the biggest contributor to that is nitrogen fertiliser. That equates to 54% of our carbon footprint from 2019 harvest. So that's a huge... Um, a huge kind of iceberg sitting in front of us that we need to try and chip away at. Yeah, definitely efficiency. Uh, and that, that's kicked a lot of other benefits in um, sort of on the back of our, our change of strategy. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, certainly I take the view and, and I think this has been reinforced by the UCL report that measuring the carbon footprint on farms is, is so vital. And you have to know where you're starting from before you set off on a journey. But there are so many different calculators out there. My view would be that, you know, you pick the one that you think is most appropriate for you and then having used it, then you, you, you then can move on from there. So, Neil, I, I know that you, with the work with Arlo and Tesco, that you use two different calculators and, and not unsurprisingly, they came up with two slightly different results. So I'd like to just uh, have a bit of a chat around your views on carbon uh, calculators and, uh, and, and the importance of them. Yeah, well, it's interesting. You just said uh, you should choose your carbon calculating method. <laughs> there wasn't a lot of choice going on in the dairy industry. We use the Alltech tool for Tesco's and been doing that a while. And Arla have their own tool that they brought in across the whole of Europe as well. So Arla have got a really great data set across, you know, many countries. And like you say, surprise, surprise, they do to come out with different results they never even have the same date period so you're always going to get different results frustratingly you know we've got very consistent data recorded with tesco's we feel we get more efficient all the time therefore carbon should go down but our carbon footprint doesn't go down so that's when you start to think well if we're into a carbon reduction thing you know we're getting more and more efficient we get doing a better and better job but our carbon footprint you know it reduces a bit but, you know, if we got ahead to that zero, just like um, Jake was just saying about, you know, if 54% of his um, footprint is embedded in nitrogen, you know, I, get, I guess if you pull nitrogen out of the system, you know, it wouldn't work. Um, you know, do however efficient we get in pig production, arable production, dairy production, do we get to a point where going below that is you know that there is a carbon cost to doing to making food 
are we backing ourselves into a corner here saying we're going to be zero you know can can anybody ever do anything zero um you know however you measure it but i think in the dairy in dairy it'd be great if they could just decide one methodology Arlo are the dominant player so i i dare say people will you know merge like they do towards you know apple phones and android phones and the most successful usable ones will win out won't they uh, they will. I, I mean, they were the last time I looked. There were about seventy calculators that I could find knocking around, and you would imagine that the market will settle down, and there will be a few leaders that that come to become the the norm of the and the benchmark. And and in the uh, uh, and it may be the retailers or the processes that that are the driving force behind how that settles down. Um, I, I think we'll come back to your other point about. Um, whether we can ever get to zero uh, a little later on, because I don't believe the industry can get to zero uh, in terms of emissions, but that's why sequestration is so important and and what and how we measure what what net zero actually means. But perhaps we'll come back to that a little later on. Anybody else got views on calculators or experiences to share? Yeah, Martin, just um, just to say, I, I mean, I think it's great that farmers are actually taking. Um, actually just going through the process of doing a carbon calculator i think that's a really positive step um, and if you are you know using your own your own figures year on year through the same carbon regardless of whether those numbers are, are right or wrong you're still benchmarking yourself year on year so you know i, I think that's a positive step um, i do worry if if retailers start to devise their own um you know carbon calculator effectively especially on this you know journey towards net zero I, I think it needs really government to step in and, and put some legislation in place as to say, you know, this is the carbon footprinting tool that the arable sector, the sheep sector, the beef sector, whichever, are going to use and standardise it for the sake of, A, any kind of carbon trading going forward, because you've got to have the right evidence in place to show that you have carbon that you are therefore able to, um, to, to use as offsetting. Um, and I think that's got to be legislated uh, and, and finding that the right, the right carbon um, calculation tool to do that. As you say, there are, yeah, there's well over 70 out there. Uh, we're just working with a new one that's coming up that will be launching in the next couple of months, um, which looks quite exciting. It's quite dynamic and yeah, it, it is meant to be pretty good. So yeah, it's, it's interesting, interesting changing world. I think standardisation is going to be essential, but uh, at the moment, I'm seeing no signs of uh, government looking to legislate on this. I think they're waiting to see how the market begins to uh, establish itself. Yeah, I, I, I'd agree. I think what's absolutely important here is that we, we don't have a plethora of, of varying um, types to, to, to do this, but... At the end of the day, what's totally important for me is that it's internationally recognised. The method that we use has to be internationally recognised because otherwise we're never going to mitigate uh, any bad press. You know, I, I'm, I've been lucky in, in the ones that we've taken part, they are internationally recognised methods. So it doesn't matter, you know, who, who questions it. If it's internationally recognised, where do you go from there, really? Yeah, yeah, that's a fair point. Uh, Richard, you've you got any experience to share on this? We're very much at the early stages in, in the pig industry of uh, measuring and recording. Um, a lot of interest being coming from retailers at the moment around this and 
worry is I'd see that becoming slightly a competitive issue between them. My nephew being younger and brighter than me, he uh, looked at the business and uh, on the farm, he looked, used two uh, carbon calculators. And one of those was a farm carbon toolkit. Our results were quite good until you look at soya and one tonne of soya meal equates to three and a half tonnes of carbon dioxide equivalent. And in order to offset one tonne of soya, bearing in mind we use about 90 tonnes a week, we need to plant two and a half thousand metres of hedgerows or 0.65 hectares of mixed woodland or 2.37 hectares of wetland. So soya is, is clearly a big issue in terms of carbon for the pig industry and undoubtedly for the poultry industry as well. We're involved at the moment in a sustainable soya sourcing project with uh, some DEFRA uh, involvement in that to try and uh, face that problem. Alternative proteins are obviously going to be key to um, us meeting uh, carbon targets. So whether that's processed animal protein coming back on the uh, agenda again or uh, insect proteins, but there's a lot of work going on out there at the moment. But certainly for pigs and poultry, soya is a real difficult uh, topic in terms of carbon. I guess one of the encouraging things is that as we are measuring and we're understanding where the big problems are, then the industry in general can start to, to turn to, to look how we can address them. And, and once you know the size of a problem, at least you can begin to do something about it. Um, so uh, that's why HSBC is, is absolutely encouraging the use of calculators to understand your starting point. And then rather than the sort of a report that you get and put in your desk drawer and never look at again, it's something that is, is a starting point, but you keep referring back to it to measure the progress that you're making. Uh, and that's how continued improvements I think we will, we will get to see. Jake, I'm, I'm going to come to you if I could, because you've been looking at soil health for many years now. Soil health is a big headline, but I'm really interested as somebody that's been doing a lot of work on this and, and what, what do you mean by soil health and what are the changes that have worked best for you in respect of uh, improving both productivity and, and sustainability when it comes to the soil? That, that's not a, uh, a two minute answer for that <laughs> at all. Um, what you know? How do we define soil health? It's um, there's a real challenge, actually. Um, but for me, Healthy soil is a soil that can function properly. And what do I mean by that? I mean that, um, that it can deal with heavy rainfall. Um, it can infiltrate water um, and it can store that water as well, which is not quite counterintuitive, but it is um, that ability to, to handle water. It's got to be able to grow sustainable crops. Um, and by that, I mean not constantly uh, being in depletion in terms of organic matter and, and nutrient status. And, you know, it needs to have a degree of soil life and soil activity going on within it. And, and that is generated by uh, having living roots, capturing sunshine and putting sugar out into the soil to feed the soil food web, which starts off with, um, you know, bacteria, fungi, and then moves up through protozoas and then eventually sort of earthworms and then mammals. So if you've got a combination of, of all of those things in your soil, air and water and biology, then to me, that is a, a healthy soil. And the easiest and most simplest and farmer-friendly way of measuring this uh, is just to take a spade or a fork out and dig a hole and, and see what you've got. Does it, when you break it apart, does it smell 
um, anaerobic or does it sell sweet and like your granddad's old allotment or that bit of uh, earth under the hedge compare it to uh, a bit of soil that's come from the hedgerow it, it, it will have exactly the same historic sort of chemical fractions within it um, same mineral contents but it won't have been disturbed and moved around you know annually or every three or four years in the grass rotation for the last sort of 70 100 years maybe so it's a really easy way to do it and if you're counting earthworms you can get to sort of 16 earthworms in a in a spadeful a square spadeful 20 by 20 centimeters um, you're about 400 uh, earthworms in a square meter which is uh, a key indicator of having some very healthy soil so you know healthy soil is what underpins healthy food and healthy food underpins healthy people and a healthy population so we're all linked to our soil whether we have moved away from that close contact like farmers have got um, and moved into a more urban area but we are we are distinctly connected to the soil and what's made the biggest changes here is um, the switch away from cultivations to, to a reduced cultivation system. We went min tilling back in 2004, and then we were sort of scratch tilling um, in 2011 uh, before going into direct drilling in 2015. And not moving the soil allows it to restructure itself. 80% of the compaction that we find in soil is from previous cultivations so if you can remove that you are instantly in a in a in a better place from from your soil health point of view uh, no-till doesn't work without continuous cover so whether that is straw residue growing plants like cover crops um, and, and mixed species of cover crops is, is very important as well different roots have different function within the soil some create tilth some uh, bust through uh, compaction, some create drainage, and then, you know, a, a wide and nice rotation, a long rotation. So rather than wheat and then oilseed rate, wheat and then oilseed rate, which, you know, the economics drove us to that uh, 10, 15 years ago. And, and, you know, you look at the problems we have now with cabbage stem flea beetle, black grass, things like that, very close rotations, does put pressure on the system. So yeah, wider rotation, more variation in there, some grasses, some brassicas, some clovers, if you, can, if you can get them. And I think there's a huge opportunity for farmers to work together, livestock and arable farmers, uh, to, to grow uh, livestock feed on arable farms and, and, and move that into the rotation. And if you can get livestock into there as well, then that's, uh, that's even better to graze those cover crops off um, before, uh, before terminating them. Uh, when you when you started to make some of these changes, how long was it before you began to see uh, improvements in in productivity and uh, and indeed in terms of the, the carbon footprint? I mean, carbon footprint was fairly quickly visible in terms of um, sort of diesel usage. We went from 163 tons of CO2 equivalent down to um, just over 60 with making that one switch purely purely from, from a diesel point of view. And then you look at um, cultivations, we, we lost a 280 horsepower tractor um, out of the system. So yeah, there's some capital savings there as well. We, we think we won't be spending probably 250,000 pounds in cultivations and tractors in the 10 year period from 2015 to 2025. So from an economics point of view, that's good. In terms of yields and margins, well yields on winter crops, taking last harvest to one side because that was pretty disastrous across the board um, winter crop yields have not altered at all 
but the cost of production has come down. Spring cropping is a bit more of a challenge. We've had five particularly dry and cold springs since we've changed over really. Beast from the East in 18, 19 was very, very dry until we all got flooded at cereals. Last year was another disaster. So within the the challenges of the climate and you know, the, the climate and the weather is having an impact on our, on our business. And, and that impact, I think, is going to be coming more and more acute as we, uh, as we you know, as we move into a, a different sort of world of climate pressure. But our cost of production is coming down. We, we benchmark with, um, with FarmBench and, um, you know, we're regularly at the, at the top of the tree with our sort of our local group here, which is, which is quite encouraging. Um, and in terms of nitrogen fertilizer, so going back to the carbon at 54% of our, of our carbon footprint, you know, we're, we're reducing nitrogen by 25% on our pretty much all of our crops uh, across the board now, because we're building organic matter and we're building soil life and soil life, it dies, it's made of carbon and it's made of nitrogen, it excretes its waste and that's also a carbon and nitrogen source. So uh, we're actually able to utilize you know, the, the sort of the biological element of, of plant food. Um, we're having faster recycling of crop residues and um, yeah, and, and, and reducing our nitrogen inputs. So still work to go, you know, long way to go. We're doing some trials with, with Kellogg's on nitrogen use efficiency with their origins group this year to have a look at timings and, uh, and rates. Uh, based on sort of specific measurements, um, using quite a lot of technology from satellites to have a look at specific sampling. We do a, we do a lot of trace element sampling as well to try and um, keep the the plant as healthy as we possibly can. That's uh, sort of negated and needs for um, insecticides. Uh, we're not using seed dressings on um, cereal seeds anymore, and that's all. Yeah, that's all saving saving significant sum, uh, sums of money. That's a, that's a really good summary, thank you. Um, now, now, Richard, you've got a, a, a large arable setup as well as the, uh, as well as the pigs. Uh, anything you'd like to add on the subject? Yeah, I mean, you know, the arable and the pig side have, have enjoyed a good synergy in terms of the benefits that we've been able to put on the land, um, you know, improve the organic matter of the farms that we're farming. Um, about 10 years ago, we took over a local estate and started farming that, and. Uh, it had been really depleted, um, really low indices for everything, getting as much farm manure onto that and slurry back onto that farm. Uh, the yields there have, have nearly doubled from when we've taken over just by you know, enjoying some uh, return of some good animal manure to the soil. Certainly make better use of our uh, slurry than we ever used to do and uh, we've still got improvements to make on that in terms of how we apply it, when we apply it and trying to get more of that onto growing crop as possible, which will need more investment in terms of uh, storage. But um, no, there's been good synergy between the two sides of the business. Well, Paul and Neil, what about, you know, where do you stand on soil health uh, in the sort of non arable space? Um, yeah, I think it's, I've been writing various notes actually from uh, Jake and Richard. I think we, we do a lot, we've changed a lot actually, that, you know, there wouldn't be an acre of our ground which goes through bare stubble now. You know, we, we'd be grass and maize really, um, but we've been investing in um, you know, better trailers because you know we have to go in the fields to get the crops out. Um, lower tire pressures, variable rate tires um, on all the kit that are in the fields. Um, 
I think that the issue in the West Country, and isn't you know exactly what was just said then in the West Country, you know, we don't take over farms that are depleted. You know, we as we've grown, we've taken over five or six local dairy farms. So you, you don't get depleted soils in the West. So you you know it's nearly the opposite. We've nearly got we've got enough nutrient. And I think it's interesting how it plays into things like ammonia regulation that's coming towards us. And you know, they're, they're all questions that on our carbon footprinting tools. How quickly do you incorporate manures? You know, and you can't really incorporate you know, a slurry tank or a manure that easily because most people around here don't have the kit to do it. If you're going to put on solid manure, we have quite a lot of solid manure at the digester. You know, that if you've been told you've got to incorporate high ammonia manures, that, that's ploughing, isn't it? So it's quite, I think it's quite interesting how, you know, on one side you push towards, well, stop messing about with the soil, but on the other side, you've got to mess about with the soil. And it's, I can see that, but I think that ammonia thing is how the greenhouse gas thing plays into carbon. I don't, I don't think that's plain sailing either. Is that whole protein, sustainable protein thing. I think where we get our protein from to grow crops is good and to feed animals is really interesting. We used to grow lucerne, now we've gone back to red clover, got clover in all our grass lays now. Um, so if we can get our, our silages sort of from a 14% protein to a 17, it's, it's a big saving. We don't use soya, but we um, use rape meal. We don't use soya because of carbon, exactly what the big industry is finding. Because you, you, know, you get hammered on your carbon footprint if you do use it. But then you know, economics dictated last year, rate went stupid, so we started to bring a bit of soil in. So yeah, I think we're all about, we do far more on um, crop yields now. We, all our fields, we have individual weighbridge loads of every harvest we ever do. Starting to look at more um, crop mapping, but that's not that easy to do in forage, much, you know, much easier to do in cereals. But the, the equipment is getting there now for um, forage production. Yeah, thank you. But Paul? Can I hear from you? Yeah, um, you, you know, be, being in the foothills of Snowdonia, obviously predominantly in this area is beef and sheep. So I would say we, we, in the area, and a lot of this is unfortunately down to previous agri-environment schemes that have been in place in Wales. I think the biggest issue for soil health in this part of the world is soil pH. Uh, you know, I think farmers in general have not taken enough uh, heed of what the soil pH uh, in the area is. As I said, with, with a heavy rainfall, it's absolutely vital that whatever you put on the land in, in, in chemical form and in manure form actually stays in the land or that the land can take as much of it as possible. And, and one, one best way to do that is to make sure that your pH is stable so that it can actually make the best use of that nutrient input. For me, my philosophy here is always start by your feet, and that means you're standing on the ground. That should make you your living. So, um, soil health is extremely important. You know, we don't have the issues of organic matter because we've got plenty of farm. We have manure. We we also have slurry on farm, but we use that in a different way to what we do. Farm we have manure. Farm manure is is an absolute conditioner for soil. It's fantastic. It does magical things. And to go back to Jake's, uh, what Jake was saying previously, there's no better magnet for earthworms than family of manure. You know, there's something magical to the soil. So, um, you know, it's absolutely vital uh, for me here that the soil health is is absolutely paramount because we are predominantly um, a forage-based system. 
Thank you. This concludes the first part of our discussion. To listen to part two of our conversation on this topic, please click on the next podcast in this feed. Thank you for joining us for HSBC Talks Business. To learn more about anything you heard today, please visit business.hsbc.com.